All right, well, if you have a Bible, please make your way to Luke chapter 9 this morning. Luke chapter 9 is where we're going to spend our time. And we're doing a very important series in the life of our church because the series is defining both the church as we would like it to be and the church that we would like to become in the coming years and days. We're doing seven sermons on Woodside's seven core values so that we can all be really on the same page as to what is important to us as a church and how we're to posture ourselves and relate to one another as we make a difference for Jesus Christ. And so today, we're focusing on the core value, work hard, play hard. So say work hard, play hard. Who worked really hard last week? Like that was your reality? There was only a few of you, like 10. <laughs> the rest of you were in Florida with me, I think. So who played really hard last week? Just had a lot of relaxing. What were the rest of you doing? Were you just napping, I guess? So that's what we're going to talk about today from Luke's gospel. And it sounds like a light topic, but truly it is not. It is something that is very meaningful, intentional, and very important. It's of ultimate importance to our life as a church family. So I'll begin reading in verse 1. I'll read through verse 10, and then we'll walk through this text together. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him, that being Jesus. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. So let's just jump right in. He gave, he gave them a mission, that is, Jesus gave the 12 apostles a mission to demonstrate the power of God and proclaim the kingdom of God throughout these towns and villages. This is what it looks like to start changing the world. How did Jesus, through the small band of followers, eventually impact the entire world with his message Through things like this, through teaching his followers to proclaim the kingdom of God through demonstrating the power of God. So he basically says to them, go and do what you've seen me doing all along. In the chapters leading up to this point, he's been healing. He's been proclaiming truth. He's been speaking of the gospel. Now he's saying, go and do the same. Go in my power, go in my authority, and do what you've seen me doing. He doesn't ask them or us for that matter, to do everything that he did. There are some things that Jesus Christ did that were unique to his role as the Son of God, as the Messiah, as the Christ. For example, he does not ask his followers, he does not ask us 
to take on the sins of the world, to make atonement. That means to cover over the sins of the world. We can't do that. That's not something that we're able to do. Only Jesus did that. But there are parts of his mission that he wants to extend through his church, primarily proclaiming the good news of the gospel. That's what he calls them to do. And what is that? It's basically that Jesus has come to rescue us. That Jesus has called us out of our spiritual graves and he's given us new life, not by our works, but only by faith in his work done for us. That's the gospel message he's given to us to proclaim. So Jesus then sends these 12 on a training mission, basically. This is their classroom. And in Luke 24, later in the same gospel, we find out that they graduate from the classroom when Jesus leaves, and Jesus is going to give them a commission that now they have to carry out in the real world for the rest of their life. And while the teacher is gone, the teacher's spirit, the Holy Spirit, comes to help them. And so this is a high-stakes mission that we find here in Luke 9. It's high-stakes for a few reasons. First, because Jesus commanded it. Go and do this thing. This is your first trial run. It's also high stakes because the gospel message, let's remember this, friends. The gospel message is a matter of life and death. It is a matter of life and death. The gospel has eternal consequences. And so for the people that were hearing this message, this makes a difference. They have a high stakes mission and we have the same high stakes mission today. Listen to Jesus' words in Luke 24 that he spoke to these disciples, but he also speaks to the church. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. This is exactly what I spoke about just a few weeks ago from Acts chapter 1 when Jesus said, remember, that's written by the same author. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and part 2, like volume 2, is the book of Acts. And he basically says the same thing. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Power to do what? And you will be my witnesses. He's saying the same thing. Disciples, I'm sending you out. Church, I'm sending you out to proclaim this message by bearing witness about me, that people can be saved from their sin. You can make an eternal difference in their lives as you communicate to them what I have done. So this is why the church exists, to proclaim to all nations repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Is this an important mission? Okay, we can say it with a little bit more conviction. Is this an intense mission? Yes, it is. Yes to both of these things. For so many Christians, for so many people who say they are followers of Jesus Christ, I believe they don't feel or understand the intensity of this mission to proclaim forgiveness in the name of Jesus for sins to the nations. It's like most people, for whatever reason within our culture, there's very many reasons we could, that could be a whole sermon series, but they don't feel or understand the intensity of this mission. Their day-to-day is something far less. So what are words that describe, for example, maybe the Christian's experience within our society, even though it is changing quite a bit? Historically, the words are things like comfortable, meek, occasional power, maybe even powerless. 
For anyone engaged in proclaiming to all nations repentance and forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, it will not be described using those words. Different words will be utilized because there's intensity in this mission. And it's not always that way, but it is often that way. So words like busy, tiring, emotional, taxing, those are words that should describe how we feel when we're engaged in this mission. And for anyone engaged in this mission, that's exactly what they'd experience. And so today, we want to talk about how our intense mission must be balanced with intentional rest, with intentional rest. So there's two ways that we can do this. How do we do this? How, how do we balance working hard and resting well, going on this intense mission, but also being refreshed? When we know that living for Christ, it's going to stretch us, friends. It will stretch us emotionally, relationally, spiritually, physically, in every way, when Jesus says, you will have to carry a cross if you're going to follow me, he wasn't kidding. There was truth in his words. So how do we balance this in our lives? There's two things that we can do that we want to talk about today. The first is to have a single purpose and a simple lifestyle. That's how we can do this well. A single purpose and a simple lifestyle. Look at verse 2. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So what did they do? Verse six, and they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So they did exactly what Jesus asked them to do. They obeyed. And I want you to notice the singularity of purpose given to the church, their singular focus that was given to them here. Luke doesn't say, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, and they departed in verse six and went through the villages discovered the very best restaurants, gave a good tip, and wrote on the receipt, God loves you, and felt that they didn't, they'd done their mission. It doesn't say, and they departed and went through the villages, feeding the poor and fighting for justice. It's good, but it's not what it says. It doesn't say, and they departed and went through the villages, challenging people's morality and teaching them a few tips on how to live a better life and how to be happy. It wasn't that either. What Jesus told them to do is what they did. The church, every church, faces pressure to do something other than what Jesus has commissioned us and commanded us to do. Every church faces this pressure in any society. Paul reminds us that the gospel, remember, is foolishness to those who are not being saved, to those who are not submitting to God receiving his Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ, to them it appears as absolute, utter foolishness. The gospel doesn't make any sense. They think it's a myth, a legend, nonsense. It's just not useful to life. They don't see its value. And there are these people that exist both outside of the church, of course, but definitely as well inside the church. The New Testament authors call these people within the church that don't really believe in the gospel. They call them sheep or wolves in sheep's clothing. They can cause damage. And you'll hear it. They'll say things like this. People are not really interested in that kind of gospel. I mean, enough talk about sin and blood and a violent death and forgiveness and repentance like, let's stop talking about that. That is an old-fashioned, traditional view. Let's talk about things that our culture can relate to. 
They'll say things like this. They'll say things like, what people really care about is for fighting for justice or feeding the poor. What people really care about is great programs for their kids and their teens and really sweet, hip indie rock music or whatever's your style. And don't even take on the issues that the culture disagrees with. Don't even talk about those hot topics. Just talk about God's love, his peace, and how you'll be happy. Now, is God love? Yes. Does he bring peace? Yes. But if this is all we communicate, then we've abandoned our mission. So the evangelical church is tempted to cave to the pressure and to do good things, programs, ministries, social justice. These are good things. They're really good things, but they're not the main thing. They're good things, not the main thing. That's exactly what we spoke about a few weeks ago. There is greater pressure for the church today and for those of us who are part of the church today to cave to relevance than to be right about the gospel. That's what we heard Pastor Doug talking about a few weeks ago. And so, yes, we want to be relevant, but we can never abandon our first love. Christ and the proclamation of what he has done The gospel tells us, it's a clear message, that God has punished sin, that he's punished sin through his son, that Jesus actually conquered sin and death, that he disarmed the supernatural evil powers, that in so doing, he began to remake the human race and earth. Paul says to the person who preaches any other gospel other than salvation through Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins through a bloody cross, sealed through the resurrection, any other gospel, he says, let him be condemned. That is not truth, he says. And when the gospel comes into people's lives, healing begins to take place. Sometimes even today, like here, God can, he does, he can do anything. He can heal bodies miraculously. But the gospel and this message that we're meant to proclaim, it heals holistically and eternally. In a sense that it heals our minds. That's what Jesus in our life can do, what the gospel can do. It heals our souls, our emotions, our relationships if we allow it. And when Jesus returns, even our bodies as well. To many people in our society, you know this. If you communicate this message, if you're actually keeping the main thing the main thing and you're proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, there are people that will be, what? Offended by it. It's exactly what the Bible tells us. It is an offense, it says, Paul writes, to those, foolishness, to those who are not being saved. So this is our intense mission. We can't get around it. There's no other words that can save someone from their sin, and yet there's no other words that can create such disruption in life. And we're given the task of proclaiming it. So how do we do this? Well, look at the instructions on how Jesus tells them to go. Look at verse three. And so Jesus says to them, take nothing for your journey. Well, that's odd. Shouldn't we be prepared in some way? When we go on trips today, it's like months of preparation. He says, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, no food, no money, and do not have two tunics. Basically, don't take a change of clothes. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. 
And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave the town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. What that means is, it was a way in the, in the Jewish culture, the shaking off of dust meant that I've proclaimed truth to you, you've rejected that truth, now that means you are under the judgment of God. That's what it meant, it was symbolic. So when a prophet or a apostle or a communicator would shake the dust, they'd literally shake the dust off their sandals, it was a symbol, a physical symbol, saying, I've done what I came to do. Now it's up to you. If you reject this, you are not in God's favor. And so that's what they were called to do. But notice what he asked them to take. Now, if we're going to be effective, this is where it kind of gets in. If we're going to keep our mission focused and we're going to really pay attention to it. Of course, we all have jobs, we have families, we have responsibilities, and yet our primary goal in life is this mission. This is ultimately, whether sometimes this proclamation is to our families, but this is ultimately our primary mission. As we carry this out, how are we supposed to do it? Well, it says here kind of with a simple lifestyle because he basically says travel light. You don't need to check the luggage. You don't even need to carry on. Just take a backpack when we were getting ready for a trip to Florida over the last several weeks, I, we just got back last week, and when we were getting ready, our daughter Eliza, who's four, she packed her suitcase every day for two weeks. She'd repack it, unpack it, repack it, unpack it, repack it, unpack it. Well, eventually she got a backpack, and on the plane, here was what was inside of her backpack. Like three books and two dolls. There's no money. There's no extra clothes. There's no sandals. There's no swimsuit. There's no, which she really wanted, like Disney dresses to meet the princesses in. Like, none of that stuff was there. Just a few books and two dolls. Now, why is it that she can leave for the trip feeling confident that that's all she needs? It's a simple answer. Because she has parents that she knows will take care of the rest of it, right? This is how we're supposed to be, friends. That when we go, we don't worry about all the necessities. We don't worry about the needs. We don't need to get anxious about all this stuff. Constantly checking accounts, constantly checking our schedule, constantly making sure everything is within our control. In fact, Jesus said, Matthew 6, therefore do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. Basically, this is the world's way. But your heavenly Father already knows what you need. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That is the focus. Seek his kingdom. Proclaim his kingdom. Communicate the gospel. And when we only focus on these things, then what does our Father, our good, gracious, heavenly Father, our perfect parent do? He takes care of all our needs. How much time do we spend trying to take care of our needs when our Heavenly Father could do it so much better than we could? Because we simply don't submit to Him. He also tells them to stay wherever 
Whatever house they enter into, stay there. See, at the time, what they were doing is traveling philosophers would go into a house and they'd kind of try to upgrade. So if they were in one house, if their fame grew, they'd go into another house, a bigger house, a better house that would pay them more money and they'd stay there. And Jesus is saying, don't be like the philosophers, the Greek philosophers of the day. Don't be like them. You're not going to try to gain wealth and prestige. You're going to proclaim a truth. So keep the main thing again, the main thing. Why didn't Jesus want his disciples to carry a bag? Well, what happens when you have a big bag? You look for things to fill it up with. And all of those things, there's nothing wrong with things, by the way. There's nothing wrong with stuff. But stuff can become a distraction from our focus. And so why simplicity? Simplicity doesn't mean don't have nice things. It means make sure that you keep things focused so that you're not distracted from your primary mission. Giving the care of all your basic needs to the Heavenly Father. And so this is what he asked them to do. And it leads us to a question. Have you thought about the simplicity of your lifestyle? Is your life full of distractions? Is there so much stuff you filled it up with that you don't have really time to talk much about the gospel or to focus on what the gospel is doing within a community or context because you're taking care of all the other stuff? Do you have singularity of focus? Are you flexible, ready to go? How are we to balance work and play? Intensity and refreshment, we have to have a single purpose and a simple lifestyle. There's something else that we need to do. We also need to rest from our labors. When we're involved in spiritual work, when we're involved in making a difference for the kingdom, when we're involved in discipling people's lives, it gets exhausting. It's just the way it is. It's not simple work. What did it result in for Jesus? What did it result in for his followers? (laughs) It doesn't mean that everyone will be martyred, But it does mean that it will be difficult because there are those who are opposed to this message and those who are receiving. And we're, we don't know. We don't know. We're just sent. That's what mission means. Missio, it means to send. We're sent. Well, look what they did. Now, Herod, verse 7, the Tetrarch is just another fancy word for his specific role within the kingdom. Other translations call him king. Heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. So he he thinks at this time that maybe one of the uh, apostles or prophets of the past had been resurrected from the dead and was continuing a ministry, and that's why people are all worked up. And Herod said, I don't get it. John, I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. And I just want to pause here for a moment and bring out this principle because the disciples' mission was so effective. They were so effective, uneducated, not very elite men within their communities. They were so effective with their mission that news of their mission, of people's lives being changed and things happening, lives being transformed, reached the highest levels of leadership within the political system. Just these 12 guys. That's all who was sent out in Luke 9. Luke 10, we see a bigger audience. But Luke 9, it's just these these 12 It reaches Herod, and now he's perplexed. It means he's confused, he's fascinated by everything that's happening. 
This probably means, it also says that he wants to see him, referring to Jesus. It probably means that Herod wanted to see Jesus perform a miracle. There's a couple things we notice here. They were effective because they were having a simple lifestyle and a single focus, and they went after it. Secondly, when they were effective, that news reached the highest leadership within their society. And not only that, but notice what happens. That highest leadership in their society then wants to see Jesus. And Jesus has to probably be a little nervous about that because the same guy, Herod, beheaded his cousin, John. But maybe he's softened and maybe he's hearing about all this and maybe he just wants to see Jesus perform a miracle. So what if you're Jesus? I'd be tempted to go to Herod and say, hey, I know that you did this to my cousin. You don't know who you're messing with. Perform a miracle and let him know what kind of authority you came with. But what does he do? Does Jesus answer the invitation to the king? No. Jesus was fame shy. This is a great opportunity. He passes it right up. He had other things to do that he considered more important. What were the other things that he considered more important than going and meeting the king of their entire region? Verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. What was the more important thing? You're given all this audience with the highest people in your society, and you're passing it up? What was the more important thing? Resting and reflecting with his friends that he saw all the time. The point is, friends, he focused on building up a spiritual family, not building up his fame. There's a lot of people who every anthropologist today says the same thing. They say this is the most narcissistic, self-centered, celebrity-centered society of human beings the world has ever known. Social media has created it. It's that we have this fascination with fame and pursuing it so that we actually think that every single opinion of ourselves along with everybody else actually matters. If I write this thing on Facebook, if I tweet this, if I Instagram that, you know, I've now shared, I've said, I let my voice be known and it really matters. We think that everybody's voice matters, everybody, all of these things. And yeah, of course, we live in a democracy. That's a good thing. And yet at the same time, it's this pursuit of self. Jesus is fascinating. He didn't focus on building up his fame. <laughs> if anyone could have done it, pretty sure he could have. What was his first miracle? I mean, he was the life of the party, multiplying water to wine. I mean, he would have been very famous in many ways if he would have just done miracles, but he was fame shy. He focused on building up his spiritual family because he knew what his mission was. And that's what he went after. What did he want to do with the spiritual family? Well, Mark's gospel actually talks about the same exact story and gives us a little bit more insight. Mark says, the apostles returned to Jesus after the trip and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. Rest. Rest is hard in our culture, isn't it? Nobody thinks so? Rest is hard in our culture, isn't it? Yeah. What kind of rest do you take? What is rest to you? What does Jesus mean by rest here? Is it simply doing nothing? Let's talk about the concept. I learned a new word this week. The, the word is acedia. It was a new word for me anyways. Listen to this quote from Kevin DeYoung. This is what he wrote. For too many of us, the hustle and bustle of electronic activity 
is a sad expression of a deeper acedia. We feel busy, but not with a hobby or recreation or play. We are busy with busyness. Rather than figure out what to do with our spare minutes and hours, we are content to swim in the shallows and pass our time with passing the time. How many of us, growing too accustomed to the acedia of our age, feel this strange mix of busyness and lifelessness? We are always engaged with our thumbs, but rarely are engaged with our thoughts. We keep downloading information, but rarely get down into the depths of our hearts. That's acedia, purposelessness, purposelessness disguised as constant commotion. Acedia is not just laziness. Acedia is purposelessness. Acedia is growing weary, not because we're not doing anything, but because the things we're doing aren't refreshing or recharging us. Did you know that one of the most common practices of spiritual life for all really of church history following Jesus was rest through reflection, solitude, quiet, and listening. It was purposeful rest. It was reflective rest. When's the last time you've spent time reflecting on your life? Reflecting on what God is doing. Reflecting on whether it's a simple lifestyle. Reflecting on what God has done for you, his faithfulness. Reflecting upon what God is calling you to do now. I think it's a lost art that is so lost that we rarely don't know what God wants us to do because we've never taken the time to ask. Or taken the time to clear the distractions And listen, if you've given me this mission, Jesus, I want to do it. How do you want me to do it best? This is what he's asking us to do, and this is what he did with his disciples. He takes them away for this exact reason. So why is it important to work hard? Because we've been given a high-stakes mission by the Lord Jesus himself to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins to all the nations. That is our task. Why is it important to play hard? Well, because play is rest and we must rest from our labors or else we'll burn out, we'll fall into a rut, we'll fall into temptation and we'll lose creativity and passion. Everyone here has a tendency to struggle in one of these two. That's why I started with the questions I did. Some of you struggle with a lot of working and not much reflecting. Some of you spend a ton of time reflecting but not much working. We have to find balance within these things. Let me just give you some handlebars to hold on to as we close this morning. So what does this value look like, work hard, play hard, that we've been given this intense mission and we need to balance it with intentional rest? We do that through a simple lifestyle. We do it through communicating and proclaiming what Jesus has done. We do these things by resting. What does this look like just with handlebars on? Well, first we give the Lord our best. We give the Lord our best. So often I think we give other things our best, our job, our clubs, our friends, our families even. And so it leaves the church anemic, filled with spectators who are too exhausted to actually carry out our main mission. Their heart is somewhere else, and as a result, the church is weak Because when people just sit, opportunities are missed, ministry goes undone, and needs are not met. I like um, a poem from the Jungle Book. Uh, They came out with a new rendition of it recently, and there's a poem in it. It's the law for the wolves. Remember this? 
This is how it goes. If you've seen the movie, you've probably heard it. Now, this is the law of the jungle, as old and as true as the sky, and the wolf that shall keep it may prosper, but the wolf that shall break it must die. As the creeper that girdles the tree trunk, the law runneth over and back, for the strength of the pack is the wolf, and the strength of the wolf is the pack. In the same way, regardless of what our culture tells you about your faith, regardless of whether you really believe that just listening to podcasts or not being plugged into an evangelical church family is appropriate or not, the strength of the church is the Christian And the strength of the Christian is the church. We need one another. We were built for community because our mission is that hard. Sometimes we're like, well, I don't really get this message because that's most of the time because we're not involved in the intense mission. (laughs) We're taking care of our needs instead of letting the heavenly father take care of the needs. And so it distracts us. But this is actually what we're called to do. So we give the Lord our best. We give the church our best because the Christian is strong and the Christian is strong because the church is strong. Secondly, we strive for excellence, not perfection. We are not perfect people. We are all broken people. But you can tell when someone's pouring their heart into something, right? You can tell when it's like, man, I'm passionate about this. I am involved in this. This is a part of my life, not just a segment, not something I block off. This faith thing, this Christianity, Jesus Christ, the mission he's given me, I'm aware that this is the only thing I'm actually going to be judged by as a believer in Jesus. So because of that, I'm passionate about our mission. I'm passionate about seeing it move forward. You can tell when someone's heart is in something and when it's just kind of going through motions, right? So we strive for excellence, giving our best, not perfection though. And we look for ways to make things better. Thirdly, we look for ways to make things better. How can we make more disciples of Jesus? How can we do more with our worship of God so people will see him for who he is? That's what we want Sunday to be. That people behold God. That they come They're confronted by God and his word and his truth and his hope and his love. How can we do more for our children so they will experience who God is and what he's done? How can we reach skeptics? How can you improve what we're doing here? See, the truth is, the the pastor, myself, and the staff, we, we we, we give time to this, of course. And I have ideas. And I have a trajectory and a vision for our campus for sure. But if it's just this small group of people, that's very short-sighted myopic. God has given all of you incredible gifts and abilities. Incredible, I know so many of you. Incredible gifts and abilities. All to be utilized within our tribe for the purpose of extending our mission forward. And only when we engage in that do we make the biggest difference. And then last, we play hard. What does that mean? means we do things together that are enjoyable, restful, celebratory, even at times reflective. Remember in Luke chapter 7, it says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was called a glutton and a drunkard. He wasn't a drunkard, and he also wasn't a glutton. But he was called these things. Why? These were critiques from his enemies. The religious people of the day chastised him because he was having too much fun with people who needed to hear the gospel. 
Christianity has this reputation at times of being a no religion. Don't do this, don't do that, stay away from this, stay away from that. Those things are true. There are certainly commands where God says, do not do certain things because he knows what's best for us. But the whole point of the Christian faith was not to tell us no, it was that God would actually say yes to us. He came to bring us joy. Joy. He came to bring us joy. He wants us to enjoy and celebrate the work that he has done in us. Our intense mission must be balanced with intentional rest. Consider these things today, friends. Can I share with you that there is no greater work than to work for the gospel that has saved your soul? Do you believe that? There is no greater work than to work for the gospel that has saved your soul. And as we do that work, we celebrate, we rest, we encourage And I want to close this morning. I'll invite the band to come up. We're going to close this morning um, in communion together. Taking communion together. Because the truth is, we only have rest, spiritual rest. We only have rest because of the work that Jesus has completed on our behalf. And what it says is Jesus came to the world and he said, all of you who are heavy laden, all of you who are burdened, Come to me and I will give you rest. So many people in our culture today, as we think about communion together, so many people in our culture today, instead of working to ex- extend the gospel itself, they are fallen, they've fallen into this trap that they're working to save themselves because they believe that their effort will bring about salvation for their own soul. If I'm good then God will be pleased with me. If I, if I attend enough, then he'll be pleased with me. If, if I give, he'll be pleased with me. If I'm gracious, he'll be pleased with me. The scripture is clear. We cannot work to save our soul. The only one who can do that was Jesus Christ and the work has been done. That's the beautiful thing about the gospel that if you place your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, you don't work to gain that approval. You're given the approval of God because of the work of Jesus. So what then is our work? In response to what he's done for us, we then go and do the same. We don't work for his grace. We work out of his grace. It's an amazing principle. And we don't work so that we're trying to Press God, which will just lead to exhaustion. We are received by God through faith, which actually brings our soul rest. All of this is done because Jesus died for you, shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sin. That's what communion is. It's a symbol representing that Jesus' body's been broken for you. His blood has been shed for you. And if you've placed your faith in him, you know that you work for him because he's given you motivation and a mission. You also know that you can rest because he's given you joy and his spirit and your eternity is secure. So I'm gonna invite the men to come forward as we contemplate this truth, contemplate communion together. We'll take these elements together and then we'll respond to what the Lord has said to us today. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. 
Father, you have given us a purpose as a church. Your church is global. You have followers of Jesus scattered throughout the nations. And Father, the truth is we often get so distracted from that primary mission. It's an intense mission because this world is broken and dark and everyone desperately needs Jesus. And so we can't trick our minds into thinking that Christianity is some simple thing where it's just easy and comfortable and mundane. There are mundane tasks, Father, certainly. But as we develop relationships, as we love people, sure, as we pursue justice and feed the poor and take care of one another and all of these things, we know that ultimately when we proclaim the gospel, our primary purpose, that will be met by some with a fist and by others with an open hand. So Father, help us to continue in our work. Help us to be focused on it with a simple lifestyle. Help us to rest and celebrate and encourage one another when we gather, reflect. And Father, I pray today as we leave, we would take stock of our lives in these matters. And together, we would be a church that works hard for you and experiences the rest of your peace. That's what Jesus did for us. That's what his sacrifice accomplished for us. His shed blood for our sin, his broken body, for our redemption. So as we take these elements, Father, I pray that we would think about these things, contemplate these things until we take them together. We're grateful for you this day. In Jesus' name we pray.